I was back in Texas uh, this weekend. Uh, left Friday, came back Monday. And uh, I was asked to go and be a keynote speaker at a dedication of a community center in Cisco, Texas. And if you've ever... Has anyone ever been to Cisco? One has. Two? Okay. Well, uh, it's, it's two hours west of Dallas. And if... I know this could sound crude, but it's the best way I can describe it. If Texas needed an enema, they'd put the tube in Cisco. (laughs) I came up with that all by myself. It's not so much the location. The people there are precious. And um, it's a small, small town, real tiny. And uh, in that town, interestingly enough, are two billionaires. They're brothers. One is Ferris Wilkes and the other is Dan Wilkes. And Dan is my friend, and I met him on a trip to Israel. Uh, I was a teaching pastor for a trip with Governor Perry, and he had brought his family and his brother and his sister-in-law and his wife and all their kids. And Ferris has nine kids. Dan has, I think, five? One, two, three, four. Yeah, five kids. No, he's got six kids. I'm sorry. And I was looking at him in the bus ride, and I was feeling sorry for him because I was thinking, this poor guy's getting a cachectomy with all the people he had to bring. And so we were in Masada, and in Masada, they have a McDonald's there. And if you ever go to Israel, they have kosher dietary laws that you can't have any milk products with meat with the idea that you can't cook the cow and the milk of its mother, or you can't, yeah. So I was just hankering for a cheeseburger. And here we are in Masada, and there's a McDonald's there, and I go down, and I see this guy there, and I hadn't met him, and I felt sorry for him, so I bought his lunch. <laughs> and he's like, why are you doing that? You didn't have to buy me lunch. And I said, well, no, you got all these kids. You're probably broke. <laughs> he started giggling. And I, little did I know I bought lunch for a billionaire. And that started a, a friendship, and um, they asked me to come out to speak at their school districts out there, and I did my abstinence talk that I've done in a number of schools, and got to know the principals and the mayor and a number of other folks there, and it just became a long-going friendship. Well, the friendship was tested, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you uh, a very personal story, um, and uh, you can judge me all you want, but he who's without sin cast the first stone. Amen? But before I share the story, let me ask you a question. In Christendom today, we have salvation by grace. It's through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? Amen. So where does God's law fit in? We look at that, and we know the Ten Commandments that we've been studying, right? And as we go through these Ten Commandments, you'll have no other God before me, no idols, right? You don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, right? Honor your, your father and your mother, And then tonight we're going to talk about thou shalt not commit murder. It's a sixth commandment. And we look at these and we apply them to society and it affects society in a profound way. But in our culture today, we have a secularist move where where morality is situational and it's subjective and it's a moving scale. So where does God's law fit on the earth? Do we read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and dismiss it and say, well, that's Old Testament? Well, the reality is every great move of God in the history of the United States has always occurred with what they call theonomy. And theonomy is this idea that God's law covers the magnitude of the earth, that it doesn't just relate to the church that we are subject to studying the Ten Commandments, But everything in culture and society is governed by the law of God, and we demand it. So in the Revolutionary War, when you saw these upstart colonists rebel against the king of England, they were looking at God's law and saying, this is unjust. And and in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? As it is in heaven. So... To set up his kingdom, thy kingdom come, to set up doesn't mean that everyone on the earth is saved, but everyone is governed by the precepts and the laws of God. Well, that's an anathema in our culture today. Try applying that today, right? And so the church doesn't want conflict because to stand on God's precepts will bring conflict. And we want to avoid conflict at all costs. We just want to live our lives quietly and peaceably, right? 
But the Bible says, pray for kings and those in authority that would quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence. And, and that's really what we're striving for. And God appoints all positions of authorities, it says in Romans 13. And so when we look at all this, we think to ourselves, where does God's law fit? Are we supposed to be proactive in instilling God's law in the governments of man? Well, according to Genesis 9 and, and, and Genesis 1, and we'll go through that tonight, it is, it is a declaration that God wants to do this on the earth. And our founders applied that because they were theonomists. They looked and they said, God's law applies to this, the circumference of the earth and in every aspect of the governing of man. And that was a Noahic covenant where he established capital punishment. If you take the, the life of one man, your life will be required of you. And that's where we get capital punishment. But today we look at it and we say, no, 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 we can't do that. And, and yet, what is, what is God's law and how does it rule in the affairs of men? And when God's law is established, the people rejoice. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And so here we are, we're looking at a nation that's imploding as we're moving away from the precepts and the laws of God. And as we've studied law, law, the, the idea is it's the wise restraints that make men free. So you apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. We've studied this. And so that's why you don't allow alcohol to be served, you know, sold 100, 100 yards from a school because we don't want our kids to be drawn to something that is debased and will destroy them. We want to give them the freedom to pursue excellence, to apply restraint towards evil, but there, there has to be an understanding of good and evil. And in subjective morality where we put in uh, evolution and we don't contend in the school districts, evolution is this idea that it's only a material world. There's no metaphysical world. There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as bad. It's all relative. And so we see the results of that in one of the most progressive states in the nation where our debt is out of control. We've gone through all of this, right? We see this. And, and as I was looking at that, I was, I was troubled. And a ways back, my friend Dan, um, you know, I was in a financial constraint, and I asked him to borrow money. And he said no. He said no. And it strained our relationship. And uh, here I was back in Texas with him after the relationship had been mended, and I'd apologized. And we drove around West Texas, and we probably spent a good 10 hours together in the, the few days I was there. And he did all the talking, and I did all the listening. And with a real slow West Texas drawl, well, he didn't get a lot in, but I, you know, <laughs> what he said was profound. And he, he said, you know, Rob, how many times, oh, I got to share this with you. I get to the Delta Airlines terminal and I'm running a little late and I had a jar of honey from our beehive that I was going to take to him. And I couldn't take my luggage, you know, carry on. I had to check it. And I get there and the guy says, don't worry, it's late, but your bag will make it. I said, you're sure? Because I can take the honey out. You can keep it. And he goes, no, 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 it'll make it. Okay, great. Well, the bag didn't make it. I came to find out TSA had pulled it aside and the government really helped me on that one. And I went to the baggage claim counter and I said, hey, my luggage didn't arrive. And the guy, and I gave him my sob story. The guy said my luggage would make it. It didn't make it. And he goes, well, there's thunderstorms and it's going to go, the, planes, the second plane's been diverted to Waco and it'll be here shortly. Another thunderstorm came in. And, and after a while, I, I, I was going to miss my chance to get to Cisco in a reasonable hour. So I just left. I called my friend, uh, Joe Salant. I said, will you pick it up and bring it to me? He said, I will. And I told the guy at the counter, I said, I've given you my sob story and you don't seem to be moved by it. And he goes, no. I said, I imagine he was an old salty guy. His fingers were, you know, he'd been working this counter a long time. I said, you've heard everything as I have. I said, nothing moves. He goes, nope. I go, well, thanks for your honesty. And I, and I took that. And as I went and I was driving with Dan, he said something very profound to me. He said, Rob, people look at my wealth and they see their problems and they think that my wealth is a solution to their problems. And so when people talk to me, they're saying one thing, but they have an agenda that I have to hear. And they're coming to me because they have a problem and they think I'm their solution. And as I, I, I said, so you've heard it all, Dan. He goes, I have every pitch you can imagine. How many times a day do you think I get asked for money? I said, countless. And he said, you know why they have a problem? I said, why? He says, because they don't abide by the principles of the Lord. Have no debt but to love. You know why you have a problem? And I said, yeah, I spend more than I make. He goes, right. He said, can God meet that need and teach you a lesson? Yeah. And, and I can take care of the, 
the symptoms, but I can't take care of the problem, which is you. Are you hearing me? Anybody else in here feeling it? And at that point, he didn't, he wouldn't say, you know, I, 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 I took that and it was a conviction to me. And, and I, I purpose to resolve that. And I, and I have by June 14th, it'll all be resolved. It took a couple of tough steps to do that. And, and, um, as I thought about that, I thought, what if we all applied God's law to our life? Because there's not going to be revival in America until we apply it personally. You see, the church worships idols. And I'm going to give you an example. Theonomy, which I've shared with you, is, is the expanse of God's law in all the affairs of the earth, right? So any great move of God always results by men and women who practice that concept. The Revolutionary War that gave you the, the liberty and the freedom you're enjoying now was a result of men and women saying, this does not fit God's law. We will no longer tolerate it. And they confronted evil and war came. Let's go further in history to the 1860s in the Civil War where slavery was acceptable across the earth. And a handful of folks said no. No, this is a violation of God's law. And there were two types of people in the United States. There was what they called colonialists and there were Garrisonites. The colonialists said, let's regulate slavery and get some of these these African-Americans, we'll move them back to Africa and we'll begin to slowly regulate and and decrease the population of African-Americans and thus slavery will be removed. And the Garrisonites said, no, they're human beings created in the image of God. They're on this earth. They're here with us. And we're not going to regulate slavery. We are going to call for the abolition of it because everyone is created in the image of God. And it is, according to God's law, it is unjust to enslave another human being. And they drew a line. Now, let me, let me put that to today's vernacular, the abortion industry. There isn't a single person in the room who hasn't been affected by abortion, my, my life included. And I'm not here to condemn. That's not the point. We examine our life. And I know the grief, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Understand that. I'm not here to condemn. When Jesus said on the cross to Telestai, he said, it's finished. That's been paid. He cast as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. But that should not hinder us from making a stand to say no more. No more. And, and in America today, we have what we call pro-life organizations, uh, right to life. And, and they make a fortune on regulating abortion. But there's a group of folks that are standing and saying, we don't want to regulate abortion. We want to abolish it. It is a violation of God's law. That's a little scary, isn't it? Hello? Could you imagine what that would do if men and women who were moved by the law of God would make a stand and say it needs to be abolished? Well, it actually came forward in the Oklahoma uh, legislature, and they put forward a bill for the abolition of abortion. And guess who stood in opposition to them? The National Right to Life Council. Yeah. Because they don't want the contention and the fight. We want to be filled with grace, and we want to love people but they can't see the contrast between standing and saying no. And do you think that evil is willing to regulate good? Or do you think that evil wants to destroy good? So what we're watching is Europe is being invaded. We're watching as our nation is, is being dis- destroyed. And the Christians want to regulate. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You stand and fight evil. And it was Lincoln who said, when he did his second inaugural address, and I I can't recount it verbatim, but he said, one group would destroy the union, was willing to destroy the union for the sake of their cause, and the other was willing to fight in order to defend the union. And war came. And as I watched 500 protesters in Portland, Oregon, standing for truth, surrounded by what they called the Antifa, anti-fascists that are in hoods with brass knuckles and sticks, and then a thousand protesters on the outside and police defending folks that were speaking nothing but truth, and they wanted to shut them down and kill them, I was wondering to myself, where are the pastors? Where are the Christians? Where's the church? Because if we're to contend and do that, what happens? We don't get butts in the seat. 
the tithing goes down. It's like Gideon's army. It dwindles down to a handful of folks that bring the water up to their mouth. Nobody wants that. But yet we're willing for future generations to be apathetic and regulated until there's nothing left to defend. And so when Garrison came forward and stood, 650,000 people died on a field of battle to abolish slavery in the country. And, and I, I know abortion's a tough issue. I know it is. There, uh, and and I, I'm hesitant every time I bring it up. I know it hurts people. And I don't intend to do that. But I do want us to look and say, with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. That's heavy. And I, I, I can see now, just from my understanding, there's a group of folks that are, this is a tough deal. I get it. And it doesn't hurt anyone as much. It hurts me too. I, I feel it. But how long do we regulate that? When are we going to say this is wrong? To, to what extent will we do this? And I was moved by my time in Cisco. It deeply affected me. To the point where I realized, you know what Garrison did when he stood? They imprisoned him. And a mob came out to kill him. They fined him, tried to bankrupt him. Let's look at Martin Luther King Jr. in Birmingham, Alabama. As he's standing for the defense that no one should be treated less than another human being based on the color of their skin. And he was in prison and all the pastors in Birmingham, Alabama sent him a letter and said, you're on the wrong side of history because you're in prison. And he responded by saying, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. The church loves to talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Is the gospel simply raising your hand and receiving Christ or is it being saved unto establishing his kingdom on the earth? We're not saved by the law, but because we are saved and then we are called to observe the law. This isn't a study in futility as we go through the 10 commandments. This is to look at our life and say, God, what do you want from me? I was so convicted by my violation of the law of God that it required a tough choice. And if I'm going to be used by God, I, Dan Wilkes' money is not going to make the character that only God can do by obedience to his command. He can take care of the symptom, but not the problem. I'm the problem. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Help me, Lord. Does everyone get that? And so it was a, it was a valuable trip. And, and as I get on the plane to come back, I'm starting to get, on, get ready to get on the plane. Michelle texts me and she says, um, she's in labor. I'm going to miss the birth of my granddaughter. And uh, I'm, they're texting me and I pay for Wi-Fi on the flight so I can get the updates and everything. And, and I finally get there. And, and, I, and I, the way I thought about it as a grandfather, I'm not going to be in the room while she's being delivered I'm going to be sitting in a hospital waiting room and then they're going to call me in after the baby's all clean and sweet smell and I'll get to hold the baby. So I might as well spend it in an airplane seat instead of a hospital waiting room. And I got there that evening and are we ready? I want to show you the picture of my new granddaughter. Are you ready for her name? Liberty. I didn't come up with it. Molly did and Micah. Liberty. Liberty Metarese Stevens. Metarese is uh, Molly's name. It's Michelle's name. It's my mother-in-law's name. It was my grandmother-in-law's name. It was my great-grandmother-in-law's name. It was my great-great-grandmother. I mean, it goes all the way back. And that's little Liberty. And I was, I was, I made the joke. I said I was in Texas fighting for Liberty while Molly was giving birth to little, little lady Liberty. So we can put that down now. So... With that being said, tonight I want to take a look at the sixth commandment. So let's open up our scriptures to Exodus and Exodus 20, and we'll take a look at it tonight together. Hold your place in Exodus 20 and also go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Let's, let's do Genesis 9 first. 
Genesis 9, 6, because this predates Exodus 20. You know what? Let's go further back. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. What the heck? Exodus chapter 1. Verse 26. But let's pray. Lord, would you bless our time together and order our thoughts? Would you convict our hearts and transform our lives and be glorified in and through the teaching of your word that's living and breathing and cause us to come alive to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 126. I meant Genesis. Genesis 126. Thank you. Can you take that off the tape? (laughs) Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have, everyone say, dominion. Dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all what? The earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion. What does that mean? It means authority and rule. And, and we not only have dominion over the creatures, but we have dominion over all the, let's try that again, over all the, still let's try that again, over all the, there we go. That's theonomy. He has dominion and we are his agents for that cause, right? And he creates us in his image unlike anything else in all of creation. And now go to Genesis chapter 9. Now, this predates the Mosaic law. And here it is, Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of man, every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed For in the image of God, he made man, right? Everybody got that? So now let's go to Exodus 20. Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Where were they? Which is slavery. They were in bondage and in slavery. God sets them free. Isn't that, isn't that the cry of all men in our heart to be free? I'm going to preach it tonight. Okay. It's the cry of all men to have freedom. God delivers them out of slavery. What is slavery? Working with the sweat of your brow for the benefit of another human being. And you get nothing for your labor. So government is a necessary evil. We've covered this. When they take a portion of what we work for, the more they take, the less freedom we have. Freedom is having choices. The more they take, the less choices we have, thus the less freedom we have, right? And the difference between freedom and liberty, freedom is having choices, liberty is doing what's right. So when the Apostle Paul said in Galatians, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free, he said that while he was in prison. And we studied that a couple of Sundays ago where that whole pyramid turns right side up. Yes? And so God is calling mankind dominion. What is that dominion? That mankind would have the freedom to worship the Lord. He would have that liberty to experience being set free to pursue excellence as as God intended man to rise. Yes? And, And those precepts, those laws bring life and they bring liberty and they bring freedom the wise restraints that make men free. You restrain towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Then you have the freedom to enjoy something at a higher level of excellence. Again, the illustration, Tom Brady, football player, has a greater freedom to enjoy football at a higher level of excellence than I do because he applied restraints that while I was sitting on the couch eating potato chips, he was on the football field practicing, right? So that is the pursuit of excellence. He has that freedom to enjoy that at a higher level. And so we come out of bondage, and now God wants to give us freedom. So he says, here's how it works. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. What are gods other than the Lord? 
Idols. Idols. Wanting to keep butts in the seats is an idol. Thinking that money is a solution to your problem. Idol. Avoiding conflict. Idol. Worshiping things. Idol. Who meets our needs in the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we ask or imagine the Lord does? Not man, God. The Bible says, let not your need be known, but to the Lord. And I'll tell you, pastors are gifted at subtly letting their need be known. I have to look around the room, make sure he's not here. Okay, this will work. I had a brother this week. I sat with him and I was sharing with him what had happened in Cisco and all these things. And I see him with a brand new iPhone in a box. I go, where'd you get that? He said, well, I told Pastor Tony that, does he know of anyone that has a used iPhone? And Tony went out and bought me this. And I said, you and I have been doing this a long time, haven't we? He goes, yeah. And I said, pretty subtle way to get what you wanted and ask in a roundabout way. The Lord didn't give that to you. You asked for it from man. And I said, true or false? True. I said, pastors know how to ask for stuff from people. And if we're going to see revival in this nation, we can never do that again. You want to be part of the ministry of this church? Don't ever do that again. Understood? Yeah. And it convicted me more than, well, I don't know that, but I, I was hit by my own words. Idols, no other God but the Lord. Who do we go to for our needs? Who do we obey, man or God? How do we obey him? By honoring his precepts. Where? Everywhere. Dominion over what? The earth. Yes? Oh, but there's going to be conflict. Do you remember Do you remember my story about Admiral James Stockdale when he was in prison? And he said, I, they don't, they, I'm not in prison. I'm stationed here. I'm stationed here. Right? I'm stationed here. His concept was, I'm here because God put me here. That was the Apostle Paul's idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I already have a commander who stationed me here. I'm here by my own free will. I could have avoided conflict. I could have uh, taken the path of least resistance, but I'm standing upon the precepts contending that Caesar isn't Lord of the earth. God is, Jesus Christ. And I've been placed in prison because God wants me stationed here. And I'm chained to guards that I'm leading to the Lord. And the church in Rome is established by everyone I've led to Christ. Could you imagine what would happen to the earth if men and women were moved like that way? And so that's the idea of having no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself carved images, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, he says. And I lost the rest of the passage. Hang on, I got it here somewhere. Oh, here we go. To those who love me and keep my what? The law. The law sets men free. You don't observe the law. The Bible says, have no debt but to love. You spend more than you make. You become a slave to the lender. Hello? You're going to work every day to pay somebody else else's wages. You've enslaved yourself. Because you won't live. And what did the Apostle Paul say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. He had nothing. He was in prison. And he was happier than probably anyone else in the room. Christ had nothing. I've come not to do my will, but the will of the Father. Verse 7. You shall not, make, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How do we take the name of the Lord God in vain? We do evil in the name of God. You, you use it as a, an exclamation point. You use it as an adjective. You use his name as an adjective. What does that do? It, it decreases the fear of God and reduces him to a, a byword, 
Oftentimes people will say something in my presence, Jesus Christ. I say to them, that's my Savior. If I said that about your spouse, I'd probably be picking up my teeth with my broken arm. Don't say that about my Savior. Amen? And now we go here, the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God. It shall do no work, nor your son, daughter. And the idea is we recognize he created it. We spend time with him and with each other, and we fellowship in his presence, and we recognize that we are on this earth. And you guys, Sunday's message by Pastor Mark, wasn't that phenomenal? And you, you see that, that work is an act of worship. And God gave that to us. And so here you see the precepts. What would that do to a culture if we operated in that capacity? We used to have blue, blue laws in, Amer- in the United States where all the stores were closed on a Sunday. And we've talked about keeping the Sabbath and, and making it holy and, and making a day of rest and making Sunday special to show up on time for the worship. This is the idea. And then we come to verse 12. Honor your father and mother that the days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. We go down, we, 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 we see the, that the further down the government is pushed, the more freedom we have. And where's the first place we learn how to live in society is by honoring our mother and father. And if we can do that, we'll never have any problem in employment. Yep. And we honor them. And God blesses that. And if we can honor earthly parents, we'll have no problem honoring God. But conversely, honoring God, we should have no problem honoring earthly parents. And, and I'll say this. One of the scriptures that people struggle with in Ephesians says, wives, submit to your husbands is unto the Lord. And I've said this countless times. There isn't a man on the earth that's worthy of, of a submission of a woman. We're all flawed. But God isn't asking the woman to submit to the man. God is asking the woman to submit to God who's asking you to submit to the man. That's why Admiral Stockdale can be in a prison and say, I'm submitting in a sense to a higher authority. I'm, I'm, I'm not imprisoned. I am stationed here. And we start to see our role in that life. Amen? And then we come to the simplicity of verse 13. Four simple words. You shall not murder. Does it say you shall not kill? All murder requires killing, but all killing isn't murder. And he says, you, the individual, does he speak to nations? Are we not allowed to go to war? We're, we're permitted to go to war. Matter of fact, God calls that, that principle. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And, and, and so we see that we, con- we confront evil and, and the folks, I, I heard the interview of the folks in Portland, Oregon, they said, we didn't come to fight, but we're prepared to defend. We didn't come to fight, but we're prepared to defend. And the thing that was so powerful about Garrison is he, he was a peaceful resistance. And they beat him and they imprisoned him and he just kept fighting. Paul was the same way. You don't see Paul fighting back, but you see a peaceful resistance to the point where they just were exhausted and people were moved by the steel spine of a man that, as he wrote in the book of Acts, none of these things move me. I'm already dead. Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. This is a man that was committed to the commandments of the Lord and seeing his kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. And he'd already died. It wasn't I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I'm not afraid. No, uh, God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. I'm more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And the fascinating thing about theonomy is that our eschatology, our study of the end times, when we have a pre-trib, pre-millennial mindset of the end times, we think that the world's going to hell in a handbag and God's going to rapture us. And then all hell's going to break loose. It's going to get really bad. Well, I have news for you. You go to the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where the Muslim world exists, and any Christian there is going, I think I'm in the tribulation. But what happens is every eschatology has an asset and a liability. The asset of pre-trib, pre-millennial is evangelism. We get people to get saved. The liability is we don't fight for his kingdom on the earth. We're, we're just going to run up the credit card and wait for the rapture. We got our get out of free card. Well, this is, this is troubling. And, and for, for folks that, that were theonomists, they, they looked at bringing, ushering in his kingdom and establishing, not that everyone on the earth would be saved, but that his, 
his rule would be established that everyone would have that opportunity to know Christ. People say it's all about the gospel, right? It's all about the gospel, preaching the gospel. Pastor, you don't got to get in politics. It's about the gospel. I do the gospel. That's great. But why do you do the gospel? You have the ability to do it in a nation that has established freedom to let you preach the gospel. Try doing what you're doing in the 1040 window. You'll be beheaded. You'll be on the Mediterranean as they take these, these monsters and make them look like Goliath to intimidate the world and they behead these Coptic believers. And if preaching the gospel is the most important thing, don't you think protecting a government that protects the preaching of that gospel is the second most important thing? And doesn't the gospel have the power to establish a kingdom where the gospel can be preached? Hello? And so when the scripture says, thou shalt not murder... We as a nation have bought into absence of conflict. We tolerate it. More Americans have been killed in the United States than in our entire history of all the wars combined. Simply that we tolerate the taking of the lives of babies. That's uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable. I don't think there's a lot of pastors that want to say that because it'll dwindle the church down to a manageable size. But if we are going to have revival, we have to look at ourselves and say, God, what do you require of me? The apostle Paul said, I counted all dung, but to know the excellency of Jesus Christ and to be acquainted with his suffering. And he regretted what he had done. He murdered Christians. He held the cloaks while others murdered Christians. And yet he came to a place where he defended life and fought for it. For all of us who have participated and have, have been affected by this. And when I was young, I remember when the pro-life folks would come into the school to speak and the Planned Parenthood would come into the school to speak. And every one of my classmates, including me, heard the Planned Parenthood. And they were so articulate and so clear. And it just made sense. And I thought, yeah. And I, and, and I was all in. It's, it's not a baby. It's a blob of tissue. I, I, I was there. And my dad, his comment to me when, when the, the girl that I was getting ready to marry was pregnant, my dad said, have her get an abortion. At that point, I, had, I, I knew the Lord. And I said, Dad, I can't do that. He said, you'll never step foot in the house again. I said, I love you and I'll miss you. And I walked out. Was my dad mean? He was giving me the best counsel he knew from everything he had understood. But my father repented, as did my mother, of what they had been responsible for in the course of their lifetime. And I, and I look at little Liberty. Molly went through three miscarriages before she had Liberty. I think it was three. And every one of them, she grieved. And anyone who's ever experienced abortion or been a part of it, they, we grieve that. I get it. But as a nation, we have to stop and say, what is my role in drawing the line in the stand and saying, not regulating abortion, abolishing abortion? What will that cost us as a people? Do you think if I stood in this community and had that position, we're going to be able to make the rent payment in the church? I think so. But it sure would be frightening, wouldn't it? Because our idol is wealth and comfort and ease and security. And it's, it's a lot easier to regulate it than it is to abolish it. Because people think I'm doing something moral and they'll contribute and I don't have to confront anybody and fight it. But to stand in opposition to it, that's heavy. And so the Lord says very clearly to all men and women, you shall not murder. Now, one of the things that the right to life movement struggles with is they do not want any of their workers, and I'm not just using right to life, I can use any pro-life organization. They do not want any of the folks that work for them to use the word murder. And anyone who's ever experienced abortion struggles with that and says, I'm not a murderer. Well, I was a murderer based on Matthew chapter 6, where it says, if you call your brother Raka, he says, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you say to your brother, you fool or empty head or bonehead, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And what he's saying is you're a murderer simply by your words. You can kill somebody with your words. 
you're stupid, you're ugly, I wish you were never born. You say that to your child, you don't, you don't need to get them when they're young. You can get them right now. I remember I told you the story about the one kid that I picked on in school and I called him a, a faggot and all kinds of stuff. And I picked on him relentlessly. And at a reunion, I went back and I had been convicted. I wanted to go to apologize to him and he already committed suicide. I didn't need a gun to kill him. I don't like, I don't like being labeled that, but I'm guilty. I don't like revealing that to you, but the Lord owns my past and my future and my present. And if he wants to use it as an illustration, that's his. I'm under his authority. And I I don't like it when people, you know, sometimes look at me and say, you know, you were the one that picked on me. You're the kind of person that picked on me. Okay. And every time I share that in a group, I get somebody who says that. But that's the reality. I own it. God's forgiven and it's paid for. But I still did it. And because I did it, I don't ever want anyone else to do it. And I don't want it to be tolerated on the earth. This, this, is, this is the profound nature of the theonomy of the gospel. It is all encompassing. This, this is breaking down our idols and repenting. This is taking a hard look at ourselves. And, and as, as J. Edwin Orr said, revival is the best way that, that you can describe revival in a church. When revival hits and people are moved... Every great revival began with orchestrated prayer. But what happens then is it's like judgment day. When the spirit of the Lord falls, every revival you've ever seen in the world, when the spirit of the Lord falls, what happens? Conviction, repentance. God, I'm wrong. Forgive me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After the flood, prior to the flood, God said, let us make man in our own image. And then we get to Cain and Abel and the first murder that occurred. And he says in in Genesis 9, when you take the lifeblood of man, your, your blood will be required of you. Your life will be required of you, yes? And so God then brings a flood on the earth and he judges the earth because they did all evil in their sight continually. But after the flood, he then gives a Noahic covenant and he says, He says to Noah, um, and he he establishes this principle to Noah. After the flood, he gives man authority to exercise capital punishment. In Genesis 9, he says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made them. He made man. Well, how do we establish that? Let's turn to Romans 13. It says, let every soul be subject, Romans 1, uh, 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute what? On who? Those who practice evil. If a government is established in the principles of God and there is evil, that authority through the Noahic covenant is established to execute wrath on those who would do evil, which means that there is a moral covenant and there, is, there are laws, divine statutes that God demands of government and governments are judged. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You honor God, your nation's fruitful. Why is it that America that represents one-sixth of the world's population today, but in the entirety of the earth's history, it it represents less than 3%? Why is it responsible for the greatest wealth accumulation, the more patents, more symphonies, more Nobel Peace Prize winners than any other nation on the face of the earth? Because we honored the Lord through theonomy. We, we, We did the tough task. We did the hard things. And here we are today. We're watching it slip through our fingers. 
And where's the church? We want to avoid conflict. We want to avoid the observation of our own life. We don't want to make those tough decisions. When I ran for office, people looked at me like I was cross-eyed. There were probably three ministers in the city that embraced me. And now we're watching as we're starting to understand this corporately. And, and, and I'm, I'm not some brilliant person who understood this and came up with it. I, I, at first, when I entered in, I had no idea what I was doing. We were assembling the plane while it was flying. And, and I learned, I got a PhD, well, not a PhD, maybe a master's degree in, in this idea of civics. And it's still evolving as we're going through the process. But I'm watching as this is starting to take root in the body of Christ. And I've been encouraged by the pastors in this community for my efforts. And conversely, they're engaging beyond anything I could imagine. And I'm blown away by it and blessed by it. And we're watching as if we don't do something as the body of Christ, we're not going to have anything. We affect government. This is our call. Exodus 21.12 says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And it goes through a list in Exodus 21 of those who would, whose life would be taken and what, what is to, to transpire as a result of it. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. James says in James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Listen, everybody's guilty in some way, shape, or form of murder. But one of the most profound pictures is one of the seven last statements of Jesus on the cross. For us, in the English, it's three words, it is finished. But in the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. And it's fascinating because come June 14th, that word tetelestai is going to be over all my debt, paid in full. It comes at a great cost. But I'll tell you what, pales in comparison to Jesus, tetelestai. He paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. But you are saved, not by our, your observation of the law. You are saved in order to obey the law. And the church in America wants to skate away from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all these areas. And, and listen, can we mix fabrics and have wool with cotton? Some of the aspects of Deuteronomy and Leviticus are hard to translate today. But the reality is if you look at it and, and you exegete it, you can see that each one pertains in some capacity to civil law. And that's what our founders did. I showed you that, that Isaiah 33, 22 is where we came up with our three branches of government. God is our judge, he's our lawgiver, and he's also our king. Judicial, legislative, and executive branch. We saw the, the four levels of government, you know, over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That's where you have federal, state, county and local government. And, and who are you to appoint? Godly men such as fear the Lord and hate covetousness. That this is the civil government God designed. And yet we look at, at 1 Samuel 8 and, and, and for the, hit, the, the majority of the history of the, of the world, it was, a, it was, it was um, uh, ruled by kings, the divine right of kings. And they use scripture. Saul was a king. David was a king. Solomon was a king. And, and so we thought, well, this is what it is. And they kept everyone biblically illiterate. But yet what happens is when the founders started in the Reformation to look at the scriptures and understand that Exodus predates 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel 8 is where God says to Samuel, you know, Lord, they want a king. God says, they're not angry at you. They don't want me. You tell them when they get a king, he's going to take the best of their land. He's going to take their firstborn sons. He's going to own everything and you're going to work for him. I gave you a government back in, eight, in Exodus 18. This is civil government the way I designed it. And so when the pilgrims came over in 1621 with the Geneva Bible, with all of the aspects of civil government, that's where the king said, we outlaw the Geneva Bible. It's not permitted. And that's how we came up with the King James Version of the Bible. It's the exact same text, only all the commentary and the margins are gone. They didn't want anyone to know that. They didn't want anyone to challenge their authority. But these men and women applied that. And this is why we have what we have today. 
Now, I'll just simply say this. Everyone is capable of murder, and everyone is probably murdered in accordance with what God has designed and defined. And if you haven't murdered, you just, you just, you just lack the opportunity. But you don't lack the potential. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy to tell us die. But that doesn't mean that there's not consequences to what we do. God wants us to govern in the affairs of men. If we don't prosecute murder, it's tolerated in a society. If we don't prosecute lying and stealing and adultery, society breaks down. And as Christians, we tolerate secular government because we don't want conflict. We just don't want to contend for it. It brings us to a really tricky place. But I'll say this. I'm limited in time, so I'm going to show a video in just a moment. And then I'm going to show a PowerPoint presentation. And I want to prepare you. The first two slides of the PowerPoint presentation, and I did this on a Wednesday night because this is a discipleship time. The first two slides in the PowerPoint presentation are just fine. No worries. The second two slides, I want you to hide your eyes if you don't want to see it. It's going to be graphic. And I'll warn you before they come. Okay? Like graphic. Bloody. Okay? Just, just don't look. It's okay. And there's no judgment if you're not looking. I get that. But I want us to see something. And, and forgive me, I, I, I was so compelled to do it, and I'm not going to do it on a Sunday morning. I'm not going to do it any time like that. I'm doing it with disciples tonight. The first video I want to show you is kind of funny. And the first video reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Because here's Paul. His wife leaves him. His wife leaves him. And they believed that he was married because he was of the Sanhedrin. And he had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And he would write later that, that divorce is permissible by the abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse, which is probably what his wife did, left him. He didn't remarry. And here he's this missionary and he goes into all these places. And I was, I was with our missionary from Cyprus who's been visiting with us, Tim Maddox. And, and Tim was saying, I don't see my role on the island of Cyprus. I said, your role is just like the Apostle Paul. It was the very first missionary journey he got there. And I said, who did he contend for when he went to Cyprus? What was the first person he contended for? And he said, the soul of the governor, civil government. And he contended with a sorcerer, evil, that was trying to establish that. And Paul won. And he contended. But in most places Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. And all of a sudden, the world turns right side up. The world turns right side up. But it began with one man who looked like he was a lunatic. He was crazy. G Gamaliel would say to Paul, are you insane? Paul was set to be the chief rabbi in all of Israel, and he abandons it, and he calls it all dung. He spent the rest of his life, when he went from every town, he didn't look for the hotel. He'd call ahead and see what the prisons were like. And everywhere he went, he was kicked through the streets like a soccer ball. And then all of a sudden, the entire Roman Empire turns right side up. Paul started what's called a movement. A movement. And I look around on a Wednesday night, and you're, you're tired. You've had a week, right? This has been a full day for me. And you look at it, and you say, I, I don't know if it's me, Lord. I don't know if I'm ready for this. But one man in God constitutes a majority. And if you're willing to have a spine of steel and allow revival to happen in your own heart and say, God, I repent. Forgive me. Now use me. Watch what happens. Take a look at this video. It's called How to Start a Movement. It's a TED Talk. I thought it was brilliant. You'll laugh. And while it's down, if you guys are... a yeah, just watch this.
gentlemen, at TED, we talk a lot about leadership and how to make a movement. So let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. First, of course, you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. <laughs> but what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Now there he is calling to his friends. Now if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself. It takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. And here comes the second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts, three is a crowd, and the crowd is news. So a movement must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers, because you find the new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. <laughs> so. Notice, Notice that, that as more people, people join in, it's less, less risky. So, so those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They, they won't stand out, they, they won't be ridiculed, but they, they will be part of the in crowd if they hurry. So, <laughs> over, over the next minute, you'll see all of the, uh, those, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they would be ridiculed for not, not joining in. And, and that's how you make a movement. movement. But, but let's recap some lessons from this. So, so first, first, if you, you are, are the type, like, like the shirtless, shirtless dancing, dancing guy, that is standing alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's, so it's clearly about, about the movement, not you. you. <laughs> okay, okay, but, but we, we might have missed the real lesson. lesson. The, the biggest, biggest lesson, if you, if you noticed, noticed, did you, did you catch, catch it? Is that the leadership is over-glorified. That yes, it was the shirtless guy was first, and he'll get all the credit. But it, but it was, was really the first follower that, that transformed the lone nut, nut into, into a leader. leader. So, so as we're told, told that we should all be leaders, leaders that would be really, really ineffective. If, if you really, really care about starting a movement, have, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when, and when you, you find a lone nut doing something great, have, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in. And what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. That's good. <laughs> so you, you look at you look at what we're proposing. And it looks kind of crazy, doesn't it? And Paul was crazy. I want to read this to you before we get to the next part. October 21st, 1835, a mob of several thousand surrounded the building housing Boston's anti-slavery offices where William Lord, Lloyd Garrison had agreed to address a meeting of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society after the fiery British abolitionist George Thompson was unable to keep his engagement with them. Mayor Lyman persuaded the women to leave the building, but when the mob learned that Thompson was not within, they began yelling for Garrison, and Lyman was a staunch anti-abolitionist, but nonetheless wanted to avoid bloodshed and suggested Garrison escape by a back window while Lyman told the crowd Garrison was gone. The mob spotted and apprehended Garrison, tied a rope around his waist, and pulled him through the streets towards Boston Common, calling for tar and feathers, and the mayor intervened and had Garrison arrested and rushed off to the Leverson Street Jail for his own protection and saved his life. And that was in 1835. Slavery wouldn't end in America until the mid-1860s. He was dancing all alone in the North, while everyone wanted to regulate slavery, he was saying, no further. We, we want a better society. We want to save the nation. But if we don't honor God, we're going to be in trouble. And then I wanted to read this to you about the- theonomism, or um, theonomy, excuse me. Um, this, is, this is just a definition that someone put, but they gave it, some clarity, especially with kind of the mindset of our eschatology. It says, its adherents really believe that they can turn the world upside down. Do you remember that? In the book of Acts, these men have turned the world upside down. 
They believe their, adher- in, uh, their adherence can turn the world upside down. Indeed, they aim to reconstruct society along the lines which conform to the universal lordship of Christ. If D.O. Moody, who was a great evangelist, thought the world was a sinking ship from which souls should be rescued, the reconstructionists want to commander the ship, repair it, and sail it towards, their, towards the Lord's destination. And, and what happened after World War II is that the D.O. Moody mindset of the world's on fire, get the kids out, the house is on fire, get the kids out before the rapture, that was the mindset of, of, of all uh, evangelism in America. It was a simple, we got to get them saved. We don't want to reconstruct society. We don't want to affect society. We just want to get people out of the burning fires and leave it to rot. And this is what we have to show for it. I shared with you this a number of times. Calvary Chapel started in 1967 in California. Reagan was governor. We had the fifth greatest GDP on the face of the earth. Abortion didn't exist for the most part. Divorce was the exception, not the rule. We had a water delivery system that was unequaled in the world. Our San Joaquin Valley produced more cotton than the entire South combined. Our school system was the envy of the nation. And Calvary chapels are born. And Kennedy shot, Martin Luther King Jr. shot. There's an adversity to politics and, 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 and people are disillusioned and they back out of politics. And all these hippies who had been checking out, God uses Chuck to go down to the, the beaches and start to preach the gospel. And people come to Christ by the simple teaching of the word of God. But Chuck, by his own admission, was apolitical. He didn't, he didn't practice theonomy. He didn't apply it to government. And they stayed out of government. He didn't call for the application of God's law or anything like that. And Calvary Chapel's experienced a 10,000% growth since 1967, 1,600 churches around the world. The lion's share of those churches are right here in California. And, and four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary Chapels. We, we had the fastest growing missionary movement in the world. And 50 years we've been doing this, staying out of politics. The only president that... that that Chuck Smith ever endorsed was Jimmy Carter because he said he was born again. And at the very last stages of Chuck's life, he, real, he realized, and he gave us our systematic theology, and for that I'm grateful, and I, I have grown because of what Chuck did. But at the latter stage of his life, he realized, I missed something here. And so as a result of abdicating our responsibility to apply the gospel at every vestige, dominion over the earth, what do we have today? Well, we've had 10,000 people say, or 10,000% growth, millions saved. And that's, that's conversion, not transfer growth. And what do we have to show for it? Well, California is no longer the fifth greatest GDP. We're now ninth. We have the highest taxes of any state in the nation. We have the highest debt of any state in the nation. We lead the nation in abortion. We're the author of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills. And most people in jail. Where's the effectiveness of the gospel? All these people have their get out of hell free card while we leave a country that is devoid of anything moral for generations to come. And the Bible says that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. George, I told you, as we were looking at the Harrison Company on, on, on the, 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 time, the, the uh, anniversary, right? How many generations have worked with Harrison Disposal? Five generations. And, and this is a company that pours into the community, does things righteously and honorably, and has survived recessions and depressions and everything imaginable. But they've done it by the book. And, and I look at him, and this is a man who can say of, of those that went before him, those folks left an inheritance to their children's children. That is applied theonomy. That is taking God's principles and applying them to business. We need to do that in government. We need to do that in arts and entertainment. We need to do that in education. And this company right here has, has profoundly affected Ventura County. And so it's going to begin with us taking a hard look at ourselves. I am not going to show the last two slides. I want to show you just the first two. Take a look at the first slide. Wedgwood was the guy who did the China, Wedgwood China. Yes, you remember? Hello? 
He's the one who made the, the uh, image on the left-hand side that changed the entire abolitionist movement of theonomy, where they said, this Negro is not a human being. This was a statement of Buckner Payne in 1867. And Wedgwood said, am I not a man and a brother? And all of a sudden it gave humanity to a black man because the rest of the world in evil was trying to regulate and remove and, 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 and create <clears throat> this idea that they're different because of the color of their skin. And Wedgwood said no. And it was Garrison and all the others that, that in, invested in this. And then over to the right, and this is Rabbi Wolf Kelman in, in 1984. He says, the fetus is not a human being. What could it be other than a human being? Is wheat in its infancy still wheat? It looks like grass, but if left alone, it produces wheat. It's still wheat in its infancy. I'm not who I'm to become, but here I'm still who I am. A baby can be nothing but a human being. It's not going to be a baby giraffe. And you've heard all of my arguments in relation to this. You say, well, it's not a human being because of its size. Does that mean a smaller human being is less valuable than a larger human being? It's not a human being because of its level of development. Does that mean an adolescent is less valuable than an adult? It's not a human being because of its environment. It's in its mother's womb. Am I less valuable here than I am at home? It's not a human being because of its degree of dependence upon the mother. Well, does that mean that someone who's dependent on oxygen is less than someone who's not? Or someone who's dependent on insulin? This is unacceptable on both sides of the picture. And you know what ended child labor laws in America? Theonomy. Men and women with a spine. You know what ended slavery? Theonomy. Men and women with a spine. You know what ended... Monarchies, men and women with a spine, theonomy. The civil rights movement, women's suffrage, theonomy. Men and women with a spine standing for what is right and saying this is not acceptable, but it will require conflict. And and, and in a room this size, I can tell you right now, 70% of the room is checked out and I'm not speaking to you, I'm just talking about in general. I don't want the conflict. I just want to be left alone. But the Bible says we are more than conquerors. We have been called. We've been summoned. We've been purchased. We're owned. We have a commanding officer. And I'll show you the last photo. Don't go to the next two. Let's go to the next one. Tell me that's not a human being. Tell me. You can't. Theonomy. Sixth commandment. This is not an exercise in futility. It's a call to God's people. May the Lord inspire you and bless you and empower you and me. I'm just as scared as you are. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God hasn't given Rob McCoy a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And this is an employment to me. It's a calling. And I know it is for you too. Let's pray.